And we are in Colossians chapter 2, and we're picking it up in verse 11. And God willing, we'll go through the end of, of this particular chapter. So let's read that first to kind of prep us for it. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of sins of the flesh, the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So then, let no one judge you in food or in drink. There's that coffee statement. Or regarding festival or new moons or Sabbaths, uh, and which are to come of things, see, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels, intruding into those things in which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head, for whom the, all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that's from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, well then why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to its regulations? Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, uh, which of all concerning things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men, now, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body. But they are no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Pray with me, would you please? Oh, Lord God, I know you love every one of these people here, and myself included. And I know you love them so much that you sent, Father, your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross to redeem us and resurrect us. Lord, I thank you for your fantastic work. I also recognize, Lord, that if the enemy can't get us to do a U-turn, that there is certainly infinite opportunities to steer even the littlest bit away from your call on our lives, and in doing so, making ourselves less effective, and even to the point of finding ourselves in alleyways we do not belong in. And so, God, I pray today for every one of us. I pray, Lord, for your hand upon us, for your work upon us. I pray, Lord God, today for you to do a miracle among us, interface with us, which, Lord, it, it's a miracle because we have no right to approach you other than your grace, your love, your kindness. And that throne is not a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace. Thank you for that. That we're not just approaching the throne of a distant judge, but rather we're approaching the chair of a father. So Lord, I pray today that you would fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. Immerse me in your Holy Spirit that your work would be done here. Oh God, please. It's amazing to think that 2,000 years ago, people were assembling, reading this letter for the first time. And the situations they found themselves in, not much different from ours here. Even if the sort of face or the clothing has changed. Or the mediums that approach them are. But it's still the same battles being fought. And so Lord, as applicable as it was 2,000 years ago, I, I see it just as applicable today. Apply it to each of our lives where it need be applied as we approach your throne of grace, may we fellowship with you. And the miracle of that, bringing life and liberty and Lord, in that in complete love for each other and for you. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say this morning as I would any, please don't just believe me. Let's just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures and let them always have the final say. Now hear me out. In this particular book, again, people have not personally met Paul as pastor, but they know of him. There have been challenge after challenge of a group of people or several groups of people that have, in essence, dressed up as Christian in the battles from within. And in doing so, sought to steer and seek to steer you away from God's call. And, and really, the essence of it is, is that there are going to be things that will replace other things. Uh, and, and, and it's never just a sort of, well, you know, why don't you just outright deny Jesus? It's more like, why don't you just 
privately replace him. So let me start with something. This is a little bit of a conversational time for a moment. If we thought about emblems, I mean, because of the first half of it, by the way, the first half of chapter two, if you think about it, is really turning my walk into just mere talk. Uh, in, in essence, we have all, we're all promise and no presence. That's sort of what the first 10 verses are about. The idea that they're just kind of moving you into philosophy. And, and, and by the way, I've got to let you know this week how pertinent that particular text is as the Lord has prepared my heart. There was a young man who taught at our Bible college, one class on world religions uh, back in Morro Bay, at the request of his father who had also taught at our Bible college. And that young man has walked away from the faith. And it grieves me. I physically feel pain over it. And, 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 and it isn't like he's just sort of, you know, well, I'm just going to outright deny Jesus. The whole idea of it is I've traded in him for philosophy. I'm, I'm a free thinker now. And in free thinking, I just think religion separates people. And I thought of myself as elitist. And now, though I think of myself as elitist because I'm above all the others by this free thinking mindset, I'm not going to pretend that I actually do. And it really makes me sick to my stomach. And I realized that was the very thing that Paul warned them of in the first 10 verses. But let me ask you something. If we were to think of emblems of our own countries from which we came, think about what they would be. In the United States, that might be an eagle. That's sort of the, the, the animal. It might be the flag. Uh, there are songs written about it. Or the liberties that come with America. Well, let me ask you for a second. This is an open time. To kind of, what about New Zealand? Or what about Jamaica? What would be the sort of signs? Or, I mean, if there were three emblems for that country, what would it be? And I wouldn't think Bob Marley and marijuana. You know. All right, that's two down, one to go. You know, or New Zealand. You know, sheep, lots and lots of sheep. You know, but I mean, what would what would it be? What would it be for you guys? A kiwi and a silver fern. And what? And the oblex. Oh, the all blacks. Okay, sorry. Yes, the all blacks. So. I'm thinking like an animal, the oblex, you know, <laughs> the oblex. It doesn't really fly. It's uh, yeah, and it makes a haka noise. Um, yeah. Okay, what do you think? What about Jamaica? The doctor bird. Aki. Okay. There you go. Okay, so known for by a bird and a vegetable. You know, and, and actually that's kind of close to Bob Marley and marijuana, but that's another thing. Uh, but I want you to consider this. Okay, let's move away from that. What about the United Kingdom? What about, what about the United Kingdom? There would be a lion. I mean, I imagine that would be part of it. Maybe the queen, that would be part of it. Tea. Oh, yes. Oddly enough, because you don't find a million tea houses, but there's a Starbucks on every corner now. Go to the Starbucks, go to the third Starbucks, take a right at the Starbucks, and then two Starbucks down, go a left on the next Starbucks. And you'll find the Starbucks where you can meet me. It's right past the Cafe Nero and the Coast of Coffee. Coast of Coffee? But we are known for tea here. That's true. Well, it's, you know, it's a dying thing, but I'm a holdout. Uh, maybe double-decker bus. Maybe the House of Parliament. Guys with those powder wigs. Yeah, right. Okay, telephone box, right. So there are emblems, right? That in, in essence, no, they're not England, but they're emblems, things that you kind of go, they're kind of indicative. Now, what we, by the way, in our little area back in the Central Coast, they just got a double-decker bus, which to me is one of the goofiest things. First of all, because double-decker buses here are because there's lots of people. So in essence, if you think about it, you have to put people on top of people if you're going to get them where they need to be. There aren't that many people in San Luis Obispo. So what you have, and it's purple. So basically, it's a Barney bus driving around, this big Barney bus with like two people sitting in it going, hi, how you doing? Can't wait for farmer's market. And that's it. What a strange thing. And because that emblem doesn't work there. It's in a, I mean, really, you kind of go, oh, wow, that's really, that's, doesn't make any sense at all. Um, now, how about if there were emblems for you? If there were unique emblems for you, what would they be? Something musical, something athletic, something creative. Think about what it might be. You know, what's that? Patrista might be there with the phrase, seriously, seriously? Um, that might be that, you know. Uh, James, it might be dancing or acting or something like that. And it's the same, you know. Luke, it might be, you know, a cup of coffee or whatever. David, it might be that as well. We pray for him. <laughs> praying for that. You know, Landon, it would be sort of boy band or whatever. I mean, whatever it might be, you know, think about those things, how they kind of play out, you know. 
Suzanne, we have like a big ear because she seems to hear everything in the house. It doesn't matter. I mean, I could be three blocks down and I'll be like, he'd be like, what? It is amazing. I heard that conversation you had. What? That conversation was actually down in South London. How did you hear that? I'm wondering, I'm like checking myself for wires, you know. You know, what it would be. But now let me ask you this. Give me three emblems for Jesus. If there were emblems for Jesus. The cross. Excellent. What's that? The blood. Okay. The dove. Okay. The lamb. A a spotless lamb. Maybe an empty tomb. Okay. Now, next one. Last one. Give me three emblems for Christianity. Cross. Fish. The dove. Okay. But you know what should be the first emblem for Christianity? Jesus. And that becomes the problem. And what we have in our text now, in our last half of this, is going beyond the emblems to the gist. The whole idea of a statement that's made here, and that statement is in verse 17, when he says, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. I mean, those emblems of you, or of your country, or whatever it is, those emblems are not the country, they're just things that are elements of the country, but the substance is the country. Or those emblems are, they're emblems of parts of your character or of your personality, but in the bottom line of it is, they're just gists, or they're just sort of emblems or hints, but the gist is you, you're the substance of it. And the problem is, when you start taking parts of the emblems and making it the substance, you've become a legalist. And that's what we have here fascinating in this text because in the first two verses we have the old testament primary symbol of entrance we have the new testament primary symbol of entrance circumcision and baptism those are in our first two verses and then from that he develops this what christ has done for me or to me what christ has done to my guilt and what christ has done to the powers of hell it's all jesus jesus did jesus did jesus did that's the fundament and then in verse 18 to the rest of the chapter actually verse 16 to the rest of the chapter so as a result of that here's your application it's his own sermon don't let anyone judge you don't let anyone cheat you which tells us by the way literally stop letting that happen Even right now, there are people that are cheating you. There are people that are judging you. And by the way, the word for cheat, for what it's worth, in verse 18, um, the the word is katabrabucho in the Greek. It literally means to disqualify you or to take your prize away from you. I mean, have you ever played a game where someone's making up the rules while you're playing? And how frustrating it is because no matter, as they change the rules, you kind of evolve with it for a moment and you beat them at that. And they're like, no, 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 no. And you realize you can't win a game if somebody else has their hand on the rules. Which, by the way, if you think about it, is exactly what's taking place with Christianity trying to engage the world. The moment that Christianity hands the the rule book to the world and says, you tell us how to engage you. We just want to feel you, and we want to meet you on your turf. And what happens as a result of that is we become so like ethereal and touchy-feely in it all that the moment we actually get them and touch them at their heart, they're like, ah! Oh, well, no, 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 no. New rules, new rules. New rules is six-foot fence. And then you scale the six-foot fence, like, ah! New rules, electric six-foot fence, you know? And the new rules, electric six-foot fence, moat and crocodiles. I mean, it's amazing how it keeps adding. And you're like, I, you know, it's like you keep winning the, the, the hill. And then in the end, they go, you didn't win the hill. You know, it's like the last will be first. Ha, ha, ha. You got here first. I win. I'm last, you know. <laughs> and you're like spending all your energy. Well, you've got to, we got to stop doing that. It's like the bottom line is the moment we try to be culturally relevant, and that's our primary objective. Look at it. Heaven isn't culturally relevant. Heaven is its own place. I would rather become much more inviting and say, you know what, this isn't like anything you know. I mean, there are certain elements we can sort of point out, but the bottom line is this is something so much better because you don't want anything like where you're at. You want something whole and new. And I'm here to let you know there is such a thing. So, these particular individuals, which we see here for what it's worth, in verse 4, look at it in chapter 2, are trying to deceive them with persuasive words. In chapter 2, verse 8, are trying to cheat you in regards to philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men and basic principles of the world. Notice, and not Christ. In verse 16, they're trying to judge you. And by the way, the whole idea of that word literally means, in essence, that they're trying to condemn you. And then in verse 18, it says that let no one cheat you. And the idea of that, again, is to change the rules to disqualify you to take your prize. Now, let's dig into it because some of the most beautiful metaphors that could be used 
some of the richest things are all in these little areas here. For those who are note takers, for what it's worth, since all of this represents Jesus, but Jesus is the gist, we have a sort of a, a little acronym, and that's the word rep. Uh, and that's because in the things that Jesus has done too, he's done things to me. The R is for what he's done to me. The E is for what he's done to my guilt. And then the P is what he's done to the powers of hell. Now, take a look at this with me. First of all, in verses 10 or 11 and 12. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. The putting on of the, of the body of sins of the flesh, the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, notice the whole idea of it is simple. You either have an emblem that represents nothing, or that emblem which should lead you to the feet of Christ. You take Jesus out of the situation, and what you have is an empty ritual. You put Jesus into the situation, and it is all the meaning in the world. Now, understand, I got kicked out of a parochial school in third grade, not because I was nasty and completely disobedient. I just lacked tact, and I asked a lot of questions. And I think about every question that I asked involved a symbol. It involved a sacrament or something that was, in essence, supposed to point me to another thing. Now, it's, it's in third grade, you don't really ask questions in a respectful way, at least that I know. I mean, I was around the bar scene even at that age because it was sort of the environment I was in. And, and so the questions were things like, why do you light candles? Why don't you just turn on the lights? No, that's a third grade question. It was a legitimate question in my mind. I mean, I wasn't thinking about how I was going to say it. I was overflowing with curiosity. Now, this question may be a little bit less reverent, but it was genuine for me. And that is because I remember in that particular place, I w they were training me to be sort of a servant around the altar. And I went into the back and I saw a bottle of Manischewitz where the priest would be. And I recognized that the priest gets to drink this wine, genuine wine, but everybody else doesn't get to do that. And I just asked, as a third grader, how come the priest is the only one who gets to get drunk? Now, it really was a legitimate question. As you might imagine, it ruffled a few feathers. And, and the point of it was, is that everything that, was, that I was asking was, I don't get the connection. And somewhere in losing that connection, what I got was, you know, imagine, if you will, if you've ever been to a bus stop, where there's the symbol, but no bus ever comes, it drives you crazy. <laughs> now, sometimes even if the bus just doesn't come when it's supposed to, it drives you crazy. Because you know that symbol means a bus is coming. Or if you've ever gone down to the underground and you see the symbol and you're, you're there at the symbol and you know all that, and then it's like, you know, that, that, you know, that voice comes on. By the way, you're going to be waiting until the rapture because <laughs> someone decided to throw up just two stops before you or something like that. And you're like, wonderful. You know? Oh, and by the way, also you're three floors down and we decided to stop all the lifts. And you're like, I'm going to walk up 400 steps now so I can try to be a Christian out on the street. Praise the Lord. <laughs> in all of that, you recognize that those symbols don't have a connection. What in the world do they mean? And that's what he's telling us here. In regards to circumcision, Paul brings it out in the book of Romans. And the point is this. Is it a gateway to righteousness or is it the result of it? Because he says, well, let's just talk about who brought it. If Abraham was righteous, when was he made righteous? Because he was the one who was first given it. And by the way, I don't want to develop this too much because I don't want this to be sort of a PG-13, NC-17 kind of message. But I'd like you just to consider one brief moment of this where God tells a grown man, he tells a grown man, if you're really going to do this right, I want to actually give you some form of initiation. Now, you know, the whole idea of it's simple. What are we going to do? Are we going to sort of spit in our hands and shake? Are we going to, I mean, what, what's the thing and God hands him a piece of flint, you know, a knife. And he says, no. And you, and you can see him going, well, where does this go? And God almost chuckles, you know. <laughs> and then he goes, every man in your camp. Now, that's great faith. That's tremendous faith. And it's a great faith of all of his men because he's got to look at all of these guys and say, guys, we kind of have to do something here if we're really going to, you know, be different in the world. And they're like, all right, yeah, we're rough and tumble. Yeah, what is it, get a tattoo, get a piercing? Kind of. <laughs> but you're not going to be able to show it to any of your friends. <laughs> now, which one of you goes, great idea, let's go. Uh, Matt, that, that would be the moment I would actually consider drinking. I mean, for at least the night. Anyway, but... 
I, I wouldn't, honey. I wouldn't, but I would consider. <laughs> to, hear, to hear me out, what it tells us is that Abraham believed God, and it was accredited as righteousness. Then God, if you think about it, then God said, I want you to do this. Now, it isn't that it made him righteous because he was already righteous because he believed God, but what he was allowed to do at that moment, he was allowed, he was given the benefit. He was given the benefit of doing something crazy to demonstrate his faith. He had to betray his logic. He had to betray his own self-preservation to demonstrate his trust in God. And I know that God always blesses those who will betray even their own hearts for what is right to obey him. And that is a really crazy thought. Now look at I'm not going to develop it a lot, but I just want you to consider this. The whole idea of it is something is cut for the purpose of the most delicate or sensitive aspect to be exposed. And God talks about circumcising the heart with the same idea. The idea is something is cut so that that part which is the most sensitive can be exposed. And that's what God wants in your heart. And we know in this country, in any city, and add to it an international city, add to that a European international city, we know how to put that barrier around our hearts to protect us. We get thick skin and thick hearts so that nobody can really get in. Because we've got enough fancy talkers, we get enough people that have their sob stories, and then we see the pictures that try to sequester all of our emotions. And then in all of that, you know, and somebody says, no, I'm 100%, I'm going to, and you're like, yeah, huh? And then you realize that doesn't, that doesn't mean what, you, what it meant in math. And, and your heart just sort of builds a moat, and you've got this protection around it. And Jesus says, I don't want that thing in. I want to cut that thing open so the most sensitive part can be felt. So you, can, so you know me. And to be honest, Real love trusts, and real trust cuts open, is sensitive for this. But the idea of it is, is if you take Jesus away from that, what you have then is a physical process that is done with no real reason other than, and this is the whole idea of it is, they think if you circumcise a child on the eighth day, a boy of course, then he's just naturally going to heaven. And that was the idea, it's still taught to this day, because he's part of the chosen people by being circumcised. And we think, well, that's a bit absurd, but it's not absurd for the New Testament church because we did the same thing with baptism. You remove Jesus from it, and what you have is something else inaugurated you into salvation. How horrible is that? A child who didn't have a choice in it was dropped into a, a thing of water, and in that, by somebody else's choice, and now you're going to be safe, live a hellacious life. That's okay, because you're totally safe because you've been baptized. You've removed Jesus from the entire thing. And he's going, look it, Jesus is the gist. Those things are emblems but the end of it all is that circumcision was to tell you, I want the most sensitive part of your heart. That's the idea. And it can't get more sensitive, with all due respect, it can't get more sensitive than that particular cut. In the same way, he says, with baptism, this is the idea. When you put Jesus into it, you are buried with him in baptism and raised in the newness of life. It is about a complete resurrection. And that's the part you will miss if you just do that. No baby's resurrected by throwing them in a pool of water. The bottom line in it is it's sort of an inauguration into a church, but it is not. And by the way, that's not even biblical. But, but the point is that it's not that that baby says, "I just, you know, I was on the bottle and I'm just gonna be free from the bottle now." And I mean, I was on the bottle till I barfed, you know. And I'm not gonna do that anymore. And, and I just poop it all over the house, and I'm gonna do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be potty trained from this point on. I tell you, I mean, if that were the case, we would baptize our children early just for that sake alone. But truth be told. It's some inauguration. In other words, if you think about it, in both cases, they've been used now to replace Jesus. And that becomes the problem when the emblem removes Jesus from it. Is now it becomes not just a symbol, it becomes a replacement. And that's the problem. Now follow me as we move forward then on this. What Jesus has done to me and to you. What Jesus has done to my guilt and to your guilt. And then what Jesus has done to all the powers of hell. Because you remove Jesus, what you have then are these inaugurations. But what we have instead is this is what Jesus did. You add Jesus to the area of circumcision. You add Jesus to the area then of baptism. And this is what you get as a process of it. Verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. By the way, if you're the kind that's comfortable and you have your own Bible, I recommend you circle a small word. It's three letters long. And that word is the word all. He didn't just forgive some of your trespasses. He forgave all of them. 
the two things that Jesus did to me, and here's my R of rep, is that he resurrected me and he redeemed me. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the, world, of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom you also conducted yourselves, and whereby uh, in the lust of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of your flesh and, and, uh, of, and of the mind, and were by nature, hear me out, were by nature children of wrath as the others. You were born a child of wrath. We were all born child of wrath. And Jesus did not die for me to leave me the person I was born to be, but Jesus died for me so that I could become the person that I was supposed to be reborn to be. Now, the important point about being dead in your trespasses and sin means you're helpless. Dead people are helpless. They can't grab the defibrillators and just go and revive themselves. They can't grab you, pull them to your, pull, you know, pull you to their face to make you give mouth to mouth. Dead people are dead for a reason. And God could have said you were in a coma. God could have said you were really sick in your trespasses and sin. But that isn't what he uses. Because if he were to use those particular titles, we could have said, Jesus, thank you for helping me. But Jesus didn't help me. I couldn't have, I didn't need Jesus' help. That would have meant that I could have offered him something in the beginning. I was dead and I had to be made alive. And the only one that could make something dead alive is the God of life. He resurrected me. And he resurrected you. And that becomes the problem with every other religion. Because every other religion that's out there involves the idea of give God, you know, give God your best and God will add the last bit. It's like you owe a million pounds pay your whatever, maybe you can come up with 900,000 pounds and maybe he'll kick in the other 100 grand if he's being kind and merciful. But it's so opposite of Scripture. Scripture is you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Now, interesting, because even when man was made in chapter 2, verse 7 of Genesis, we read that God made man, he formed him out of the dust of the ground and then breathed life into him and then he, beca and then he became a living being. He was still called man before that. He made man, he formed him, but he wasn't alive until God breathed life into him. Which means the very first thing that man saw was God giving him life. The first information he had to process was God giving him life. What if that was the first information he processed? You gave me life. You're not going to find it in this world. I'm not going to find it anywhere else. You're the one who gives life. You resurrected me. Baptism didn't do that. You can't, and you baptize a dead person. It isn't like they come back to life. You circumcise a dead person, it isn't like they're going to come to life. It isn't like, hallelujah! I mean, the bottom line, I don't think anybody says hallelujah than being circumcised. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, but the point is, is, it doesn't resurrect. And it doesn't redeem. Forgiving you your sins is a very fundamental issue. Because what killed us, according to this, was our trespasses and sins. That was the very emblem of our death. And with that, I should say the emblem of our sin was death. And yet in that, he's forgiven all of our sins. And I love the word because the word literally means to cast the meaning to the earth. What he's done to you, no ritual could do. No law could do. No standard could do. No rite could do. No church could do. Only Jesus. You remove Jesus from it, you ain't coming alive. You ain't redeemed. You aren't forgiven because no church can forgive you. No father or man on earth can forgive you. Only Jesus because no one else has ever paid for them. And he looks at you. And remember, this is all going to lead to the point of saying, so why are you going to let somebody else call the shots instead of Jesus? Now understand, it's always an instead of. It's not just, well, then you're just free to do whatever you want. Well, excuse me for a second here. Understand, when the, when the Bible speaks about freedom, it says, look, you are free now, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for sin. Rather, in love, serve one another. See, the one thing you weren't free to do before was actually to serve someone, to love them. You were not free to love being dead. And no rite, no ritual, no church, no religion, no denomination or non-denomination is going to pull you out of death and forgive you. That work is exclusive to Jesus and praise the Lord. And now he develops that even more in regards to that. And two extremely beautiful metaphors are used here. So we've gotten our R. Our R is what Jesus did to me. And what is it? He resurrected and 
redeemed. Okay, now there's more than one of you here. So what did he do? He resurrected and he redeemed. Beautiful. Let's get to the next one. Verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us, he'd taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. If we're going to do the word rep, then we got an E in here. And there are three things that he has done in the E. He has erased, he has eliminated, and he's eradicated. That's what he's done. But the terms are gorgeous. The first term, for what it's worth, the word erased. Uh, exilipho is the word. And exilipho literally means to blot out. Now that might not mean that much to you, but it means everything to me. It's only used three times in Scripture. It's used here. It's used in the book of Acts, chapter 3, verse 19, when he says, Repent and be converted, this is Peter speaking, that your sins may be blotted out, just like we see here. And then in chapter 3, verse 5 of Revelation, when it says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Now, <clears throat> Middle East, or even Europe, as we see here, Turkey, the area of Colossae, it's in Turkey, 2,000 years ago, you were born into a community the day that you were born. Today we get a birth certificate. In those days, you just get written in a registry. And that registry says where you were born. Now that's really important. That registry was used to get Jesus to Bethlehem, if you think about it. Because Jesus, though not Jesus, though before he was born, they were going to tax, and so people had to go back to their houses of their or the, the cities of their ancestry. And the way that you can check that was by looking in these books that were called, in essence, the Book of Life. Now, the Book of Life was not just something exclusive to heaven. It was a term that people understood. It was just your life registry. It was the thing that you can look at and say, well, then where was this family? Where did they come from? And you could chase them back by looking at it. So, Janae is born, let's just say, Janae is born in a town called Lachla. <laughs> She's born in a town called Lachla in the middle of someplace in the east in the Far East, or in the Middle East. And as she is, the day that she is born, her name is written in there. It's a daughter born to, you know, to her parents, and so they're written in that registry. They also know, and that the elders can check that later on when she wants to get married to make sure she's not marrying her brother or something weird like that, because they can all check it by family registry. Now, her name will be permanently in that registry unless she does something so wicked so evil, so dishonorable that the mere mention of her name would make people say, don't even say that name around here. That's evil. As a result of that, what they would do is the elders of the city would go back to that registry and they would blot out that name in the registry because they don't even want that name associated with their city. Blotting it out is the elders' way of saying that's as if she never existed, she was never born, she was never here, she never grew up here, she never played in the street, she never made friends, she never worked at that donut shop, she never made challah bread right before Sabbath, she never, you know, learned how to, you know, whatever, and she, she, no, none of that. There is no hint, no scent, no mention of her, she just does not exist, and you are not allowed to mention her name anymore in this city. Now that sounds pretty heavy. Until you recognize why, the way it's used here. Now listen. He blotted out. Notice what it says. What did he blot out? The handwriting of requirements. That is your verdict of guilt. Now listen. According to our other text, as we looked at in the book of Acts, repent and be converted, it says that your sins may be blotted out. You see, one day, in your life, when you were really, really young, Sin at your door. And you, being such a godly individual, said, Come in. Make yourself at home. This is your place now. And sin just ravished the place like a rock star in a hotel room. Just tore up everything. And in doing so, you were a mess. Now, Jesus didn't just come and kick the rock star out of the hotel room and go, wow, this is really a wreck. But at least the rock star isn't here anymore. What he did was, 
He completely erased that sin from you. He blotted out sin in your life as if it never existed. It never visited, it never came, and never lived, and never put its feet up on the coffee table, and never didn't flush the toilet, and never did whatever, and never left its socks or wherever or whatever. There's just no hint, no mention of it. Sin no longer was born in you. Sin no longer grew up in you. Sin no longer matured in you. Sin no longer advocated or worked. And none of that exists anymore because he blots it out. This is why it tells us in 1 John, whoever is born of God doesn't sin anymore. Now, that doesn't mean you don't commit a sin. Sin used to be, if, when sin would apply for a credit card, and sin had said permanent address, it put your name there. Permanent address, Pastor Anthony. That was a permanent address. But Jesus kicked him out and removed him from my registry as if he never lived there. Now, he still might try to come for a visit. But he's not a resident or a citizen of Anthony Holiday ever again. That's the beauty here. And that's the term he uses. He erased it. Sin no longer has resonance in you. Oh, we could come to visit, but you still have a choice now. It knocks at the door, and you could just say, You don't live here anymore! Or however you want to say it. You can try it like that. See what happens. (laughs) You see, because there's a new resident in town. And that person has filled up all that space. And that's Jesus. Without Jesus, what do you have? You have an empty house waiting to be filled again with sin. Jesus is every bit of this. He was the one who erased it. The church didn't erase your sin. The church didn't erase that registry. Baptism, circumcision, a group, a council, a non-denomination or a denomination, none of that did that. A great worship team or whatever, it didn't do that. Jesus did that. But not only did he do that, but he said then, he's taken it out of the way, and that's the idea of, by the way, of forgiving it. And then it says that he nailed it to the cross. Now, for what it's worth, taking it out of the way, I mean, a lot of these terms are so beautiful and profound. The only, by the way, that term is only used twice in Scripture. This term for taking it out of the way. The other time is in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, when John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In both cases, and the idea of it is, listen, to utterly and absolutely remove forever. I love that term. And then having nailed it to the cross. I'd like you to consider the fact that the only thing you nail to the cross is, the, is why you're hanging there. I mean, people don't just want to look and see a bloody person. The Romans did that for a couple of reasons. They tried to make their, their punishment so heinous that when people look and say, whatever you do, don't do that. And so you hang above them then the crime so that people can learn, don't like that crime because that crime involves this punishment. What did he nail to the cross? My guilty verdict. In other words, all of my sins are what hung above Jesus. So that when people look say, that equals that. Now, of course, what we read is Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, the Romans put that up there because, of course, the idea is don't you try to put yourself as king. There's already one who is. Which, by the way, will happen when you share Jesus with people as well. But according to this, in heaven's sight, that sign said my sin, my guilty verdict. But if I look and I see that, it's called a titlus, like a title. And I see that and it's got my sins on it. And then I look and I see Jesus is hanging flat. There's got to be a part of me that says, you better not want that because that's the result. I should hate what's up there if I recognize that's what killed my Savior. That's what tortured him right there. So to my guilt, he erased, he eliminated, and he eradicated. Now, let me tell you what he did to the powers of hell. This is our D. I'm sorry, P, because it's rep. I know how to spell. Verse 15, having disarmed principality and power, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What he did is he plundered. That's the first one. He proved, and then he paraded. Or I should say for the second, he presented. Now, This term in verse 15 to start with, disarmed, only used two different places. Here's the first, or I should say, it is the first, because the other one is in Colossians 3, verse 9, when it says, don't lie to one another since you've put off the old man. The idea of this of disarmed, 
for what's worth, it's apek dumai. Apek dumai is the idea of completely plundering. The idea of stripping a guard of all of his things. So you've got a person and he's a psycho. He's got two bandoleros around him. Dun, dun, dun. I've got my guns. I've got my bazookas. Because I've been raised on American movies. And so I just know I can go somewhere and get a bazooka and an anti-missile you know, aircraft thing, anti-aircraft missile. And then I've got grenades and I've got all these things. And I'm a rotten guy. And when they take all those things, I've got a blowgun. You know, I'm ready. And, you know. And, and, you know, and, and all of this, and we look, and this guy's such a tough, he's a dangerous thing, but, but we don't even see how big he is because he's so covered in all of his armor. And, and you strip him of all of that, and you look and go, man, you ain't so hot now. You got nothing once all your armor is removed. You're standing there, and your boxers are just skivvies, and you're going, you're just a little guy now. And that's the word that's used here. But it isn't that he did that with your guilt. Your guilt, remember, was removed completely. It was erased even. He did that with all the powers of hell. Now, the reason why we're so freaked out by all of these evil things, to be honest, is because we've gotten our doctrine from Hollywood. We've, you know, Satan, he's scary, he's big, and all those devils and those demons. Have you seen what they do in the movies? They turn people green and they turn them around like they're on a spit. And then they, oh, and super, you know, little girls pick up cars and they throw them at people. And, and then they, and then they turn into like a dragon. And hey, haven't you seen that stuff? And then they go, oh, and they fall, it pierces the sky. And the clouds come and they rain hippos. I mean, it's the power they have. And then you watch a Christian, he's like, oh, he's like, kind of got his book. Oh, he's like, oh, the almost Look out for the apple! What part of that's in scripture? But we, that's where we get it from. And Jesus says, well, let me just show you what the enemy looks like in his boxers. Let me show you what a demon looks like in his boxers. That's the term that's here. Stripped of all their weapons, man. They're all they're just there, scrawny little thing. Now look it. It doesn't say it doesn't say greater is me with he than he was in the world. It isn't like dumbness for me, I'm a man of God. Man, come on, come on, I'm gonna look for I'm gonna go demon hunting. Why don't you go why don't you actually just go lost person hunting? You know why? Because it's not hard to find one of them. Maybe the demons would love you spending all your time trying to, oh, I'm going to take my spiritual gun now. I'm going to fill you full of hose, man. Come on, demon. Try to, come on, man. Make with me, man. I'm a man of God, man. And I talk to people like that. I mean, I know people that's like, you know what? Every morning, the first thing I do is I just tell Satan, he's just got to go, you just go climb a mountain. And he's got to listen to me because he's under my feet. As if Satan's like, not again. I have to climb a mountain. And when you're done, um, do my laundry. Yeah, you know, whatever. I think the enemy loves all that PR. The bottom line, if, if when I married my wife, I married her to be intimate with her. And it's like, I don't want to include anyone else in that. It isn't like, I mean, imagine Suzanne going, I do. Now, go talk to my mom. You know, if you really want to talk to me, talk through my mom. If you really want to talk to me, there's some dead relatives I'd like you to try to work through first. I would be like, we should have discussed this before I said... Will you marry me? How much more Jesus? Imagine Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. And Jesus goes, yes, that's why I died. Now talk to my mom. <laughs> Excuse me? Jesus, be everything. Be the Lord of my life. Yes, I died to be with you. Now if you really want to talk with me, here's a list of dead people that you should go through. Kneel down at their casket. I mean, imagine if, you know, if my wife says, I do, and then she just started throwing things between us. I'd be like, I think we're mis... I think we don't have the same definition for marriage here. You know, it's like, I do, and she's like, ah! And she runs. And I'm like, hmm, this is a bad time to do that in front of 350 of your parents' closest friends. He disarmed them. They're nothing left. But it doesn't say greater is me with thee. It says greater is he who is in me. 
this isn't my battle to fight. See, when the enemy comes knocking, he says, you know, I used to live here. You remember people that talk about they sold their soul to Satan? I'm thinking, no, what? Now, is Satan that dumb? He had their soul before that point. Until you give your life to Jesus, he owned it. I'm going to make a deal with you, Satan. He's like, you can see Satan going, uh, like, what am I going to get? I already have that. <laughs> oh, man, you can make me a star, and you can make me rich and famous, but here, man, take my... He's like, I already got that. Why would I want to... You know, like, is he that dumb of a businessman? <laughs> you know? But if he comes knocking at your door now, and he's going, you know, I used to live there. Don't go, man, I'm going to... I'm gonna grab my. I'm gonna grab a stick. I'm gonna beat him with an ugly stick. I'm gonna open up the door. Come on! He's saying like, well, at least we get to spend some time together. That means that's time you don't get to be with Jesus. The bottom line is, if he knocks at your door, man, just turn around to the new landlord. Turn to Jesus and say, "It's for you, and it's done." I guarantee you, he's not gonna be hanging out on your driveway when you go and get Jesus. He disarmed principalities and powers, beloved. And then it says he made a public spectacle of him. By the way, that term's only used twice in Scripture. Here's one. The other time, by the way, was with Joseph. And it said he didn't want to make a public example of Mary. By the way, God said that that was a righteous thing. Isn't that a wonderful thing to say? Now look, at Joseph, Joseph had, hear me out, he had the right. He had the legal right. And he would have been the one to cast the first stone because he was the one most offended. Dad was number two because his honor was infringed. And he could have said, man, we're going we're gonna to drive out we're gonna drive out that evil out of this town, which, by the way, guess what they would do with Mary's name? They'd be blotting it out. And Joseph, because he was a righteous man, he wanted to show mercy. He's like, what's the most merciful thing I can do on the day of exile? I have two options, kill her or send her out. I'm going to send her out. I mean, I'm not a big, you know, endorse lots of movies and all that by any means. But if any of you have seen the Nativity, I think they've done a pretty good job of developing Joseph's character. You don't really see that in anything else because everyone's so busy with Mary. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is, Joseph, in it at least, you kind of you see a guy that's kind of got some ethic and some moral. He's, just got his, he's, he's kind of the kind of guy that you look at and you go, you know what? I think we could be friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's the kind of guy I would want to hang out with because I think that's the kind of guy that I would expect to be upright. Mm -hmm. I'd, I love upright people. But it says Jesus on the other hand. He made a public spectacle of knowledge. He presented them then. So he stripped them of everything. And then he says, now take a look at this. But I think it's beautiful. This is Jesus' last one. Triumph. Triumph does not mean here, first of all, it's not just a little car made here. Okay? <laughs> triumph is not just a band from the 80s from Canada. And triumph it does not just mean, you know, that you're rocky and you've just dropped someone from Russia or whatever. And then just, hey, I'm triumphed. Yeah, you know. And the bottom line is, triumph was a specific event. And here's the way it works. We're going to battle as an army. There's the front line guys, the people who go in first, the Navy SEALs. By the way, I was related to one of those. And they go in first, and they just basically start killing everyone, and, and they don't even take names. They just kill everyone. And so they just get, get in there, and they start sort of carving. They're the pioneers. They go ahead. And then after that, the main army kind of comes in. And then after that, the rear guard comes in. And at the end of all of that, let's just say it's been somebody that's been torturing us and making our life futile and miserable and awful. All led by one commander. And then finally you find their leader, their dictator, and all of his henchmen, the people who've been torturing your own, that have killed your family members, that have made your life miserable and empty been in bondage as a result of it. You see, there's something about seeing them defeated. Not just knowing it, but seeing it that makes a difference. It's seeing the individual who was making your life so miserable now in a casket. Not that I'm saying, you need to put them in a casket. I'm saying when you see that and you realize this is done, it's over. See, what would happen then is they would have a parade. And that parade would be a parade where first the front line, those front leaders, would go first. Then at the back side of it is the rear guard. But in between was the commander on a big chariot. And on that chariot were a bunch of posts, like, like big nails. And on those nails were chains. And those chains then were to the cuffs of that leader and his, all of his henchmen that were being pulled 
through the streets, no, not dragged through the streets, but pulled, publicly shown every one of those people that made your life so miserable, that owned you, that blamed you. Look at them now. They are completely under the submission, under the domination of your chief official. And the chariot was proof of it. That chariot was the thing that openly demonstrated it's done. It's over. And by the way, for what it's worth, do you know where they were being led to? Their own execution. Those men were going to be executed. Well, why parade them first? So you can see it. Because not everyone can see the execution. I remember how for a while they sort of... Um, they sort of black lined, black lined in, like sort of like you know, um, somebody actually used a phone to to video Saddam Hussein's hanging, mm -hmm. and how that made its way, black lined its way through all of these different you know websites. I don't think it would surprise you how many people from his own area watched it over and over and over again, because they just needed to know for sure he was dead. I mean, all the reports in the world when you've been terrorized. All the reports in the world don't mean half as much as just seeing it. And just listen to this. He made a public spectacle of them. That's all the powers of hell. Triumphing over them in it. What is Christ's chariot, beloved? It's the cross. Chained to the cross was your guilt. Or I should say hanging from the cross was the title of your guilt. And chained to the cross was all the powers of hell that ruled and reigned you. Because remember it says in, in Ephesians 2 that we were by nature children of wrath because we were ruled by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is still at work in the sons of disobedience. In this life. And that's the case, beloved. It's if Jesus were to say, look, look at this. Look at it. I mean, I'm not just telling you theoretically ascertain the idea of it. Look at this. I won. It's over. This is going to you. It's execution in your life. And this is the parade. And by the way, this is your parade now. You remove Jesus from this. What did the powers of hell have to do with the church? With a denomination? With a rite or a ritual? Jesus is the apex. He is the very source, the paradigm for which all of these other emblems then are going to revolve. But without Jesus, it's a worthless. They're just empty things. They're a machine that never gets plugged in. It never works or operates. He paraded it. He triumphed over it in it. So as a result of that, let's bring this to application and it's a quick thing. So then don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone condemn you in food or drink or regarding festival, new moons, or Sabbaths. The idea is pretty simple. There's all kinds of reasons where people can say, well, obviously you must not be righteous because you drink coffee. You must not be righteous because you eat meat. Boy, I tell you what, that would be really horrible. And I understand that people used to sacrifice a lot of those things to other, um, to, you know, to other gods, and then they'd sell the meat in the market. Now, they don't do that today. Glory to God for that. And you can just go and get meat. Um, last night, or yesterday, I went on a date with Ruthie. And I tell you what, that little girl ate more meat. I think she ate an entire cow. We went to a thing called, uh, we went to a thing called a Brazilian barbecue. And I don't want to in any way kind of you know, stumble you if you're a vegetarian. Praise the Lord if you are. Um, I've heard someone say, you know, look at, I got fat because of vegetables. I mean, look at a cow and look at a cheetah. Decide for yourself. Um, <laughs> But anyway, so sorry. The, the point is this, is that, you know, we went to this place and basically they just keep coming to your table with meat. Uh, and glory to God. But the whole idea of it, look it. And if you're going to be angry at me, don't let anyone judge you according to what you eat. Uh, in regards to what you drink. Now, this is, now remember, this is a real classic place for people to springboard into sin if they want to. I mean, look it. In America, there was a time where everything was owned by a cult. I mean, you ever remember those days where people were like, oh, are you drinking that? Do you realize that brand's owned by this cult? Or, oh, you're drinking that? Oh, that's owned it. I'm like, well, thanks a lot. I mean, you know, it's like you got to be careful. Even you drink bottled water. Do you realize where that bottle of water came from? I don't want to know. It's water. I mean, I've gotten down to water. What happens when this is evil? Where do I go from there? Are you going to tell me my spit came from a cult? I mean, where do we go? Listen, hear me out. Because we're, we're, we're wrapping this around now. Don't let anyone judge you for that. But listen, don't let anyone judge you. 
But be careful the difference between judging your action and judging you. Remember, don't use your freedom as an opportunity to sin because the classic one for drinking, of course, is alcohol. Now listen, the difference between legalism and a personal conviction is a personal conviction is something God builds a fence for you to keep you away from your own weakness. In that, though, legalism is when you declare that that's the standard for righteousness for everyone. But know this. In a house, all it takes is one person that could be weak in something, and it's the rule of the house because it tells us we should do nothing to stumble another. Every person in this house is, in essence, signed an edict that says they're not going to drink alcohol, not because it makes them righteous or unrighteous, but because we want to do nothing to stumble another individual. We go on Thursdays to a place where people's lives have been destroyed and devastated by it, but it doesn't make them righteous. It just makes them, in essence, more predisposed 24-7 to the need around us. And we don't even have to be reminded, but every night, because someone pops out of that pub and reminds us how dumb you are. I mean, it encourages you to make dumb choices, but I'm not going to judge you on it. I'm not going to tell you you're going to hell because you've had a glass of wine. Now, on the same side of it, don't let anyone condemn you for it. Don't let anyone condemn you because you just might actually go and celebrate the New Year's Eve. And there will be people that, there are going to be people that will tell you that celebrating Christmas or your birthday is an evil thing. And that's the whole idea of all of this. Now understand, it says again, these things are the shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. If you're judging me on this, outside, the whole idea is this, and here's my simple question to you. Can you do this holding Christ's hand? If you can do it doing, holding Christ's hand, then you never have to concern yourself with it. If you're like, man, I know I can't do this and hold Christ's hand, well then, out of, out of respect, don't do it. I mean, it should be your conscience that should tell you that. No, all these things are shadow of things to come. The substance is Christ. So therefore, let no one cheat you. And again, the idea of that's taking away your prize. And it says, rewards to false humility. And by the way, quick note on that. Humility, it's simplest. The definition of humility is not, I think, lowly of myself. I just don't think about myself. That's really the truth of it. If I'm berating myself in front of you all the time, I'm not being humble because there's too much self in selfless. And that's the idea. False humility is just me trying to make myself look humble in front of you. But the bottom line is if I'm thinking about you and not about me, I can be humble all I want. And that's the issue of it. So taking delight in false humility, worship of angels, you know, oh, and there's Jesus saying, oh, well, you better go talk to these people instead of me. Intruding on those things which they've not seen, vainly puffed up in their fleshly mind. Not holding fast to the head. And that's the idea that you've been disconnected from Christ. That's why all of these things have more meaning. The minors become the majors when Jesus is not in the equation. And we've said the main things to keep the main thing the main thing. And Jesus is the main thing. So not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments. They grow. The, excuse me. The increase that's from God. The increase is not from a system. It's not from a book on church growth. Your growth is Jesus. Jesus resurrected you. He forgave you, so he redeemed you. Jesus then took and erased and eliminated and eradicated your guilt. He did all of that. Jesus then plundered, and then he proved, and he presented, and he paraded the enemy as defeated in front of you. Jesus did all of that. So who's going to grow you? Who's going to establish you? Who's going to give you your ministry? And who's going to abound you in it? It's always the same. Everything else, if it doesn't bring you to Jesus, isn't doing what it's supposed to. It's an empty emblem, and God has no intent for those things. He'd rather you connect them, or you're standing at a bus stop where no bus ever shows up. So therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of this world, well, then why are you living in it? Do you submit yourself to those things now? Well, you understand, we just better keep the Sabbath. I recommend you take a day off. But I tell you what, according to Scripture, if you, took, if you actually submitted to the Sabbath laws, it's amazing because, by the way, you work six days and you take one day off. And then every seventh year, you actually let the entire, you let your business, you untouch it for a year. And then every 50 years, then you actually hand over all your stuff. I mean, you, there's no debt left at, at that point. Those are parts that are all equated with the Sabbath law. Now, in the end of it all, people will say, oh, look at how that person is doing something on the Sabbath. And then I'll tell you it's Sunday. It's Sabbath Saturday, first of all, from sundown to sundown. Just consider this. When someone says that, go to Romans 14 and just tell them, look, it says one person holds one day special and one person holds every day special, but let each one be firmly convinced in their own mind. Here's the bottom line. If I'm going to give Jesus one, if I'm going to give my wife one, one day of the week, 
asked me and said, but we're so intimate, we're so close, but the other six days are with a bunch of other women. I'm not after marriage. Let every day be Christ's day. Sit aside one day to just be the Lord's. Be with him every day. Don't rob him of that. So why are you submitting then to a bunch of other people's laws that say, look, this is what makes you right. This tie you wear, this haircut, don't listen to rock music, and that beat that beats from Satan. You just know that. That's from the jungles of, of Africa, and they sacrifice people to Satan there. And you know, So don't you dare use that beat. Oh, yeah, well, I'm sorry. But the bottom line is, if you attach, can I attach Christ to that? If I can attach Christ to that, then I'm going to do it. But if I'm not, you know, if I can't, you know, it isn't like I'm going to run naked through the streets because I can hold Christ's hand doing that. I know better. <laughs> so why is it that you're trying to make your whole walk about rules instead of about Jesus? Close it up. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. These things perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body. No value in the indulgence of the flesh, against the indulgence of the flesh. In the end of it all, all the laws in the world are not going to make you more disciplined to follow Christ or to make you more holy. Christ will make you holy. The product of that was actually you'll find yourself being the law to yourself. And the beautiful part about that is people won't be able to say, well, wait a minute. I mean, imagine if someone, and I've had people tell me, oh, you know, you're obviously not saved because your buttons, or your shirt buttons unbuttoned twice. Or, I mean, sincerely, and I'm like, wow, I, I didn't realize that that were the case. <laughs> I wonder what they do. I guess everybody in Hawaii is going to hell because they don't even wear shirts most of the time, the guys, that is. And you realize, wow, and then that must mean that everybody's saved in Antarctica because nobody's bun-buttoning their shirts there. <laughs> But anytime someone wants to throw that trip at you, then just ask, where's Jesus in it? But if someone comes to you and says, you know, I noticed this particular aspect is interfering with your walk. You ask, well, well, let's put Jesus in it. And you put Jesus in it and Jesus just says, yeah, that's getting in the way between us. Well, then deal with it. That's not judging someone. That's loving someone. And people say, well, don't you dare judge. You're judging me. Look at, I'm just telling you that particular action is contrary to walking Christ. I'm not judging you, but I am judging that action. But if I'm going to judge that action, I recognize that I'm going to hold that same standard in me as the Lord is going to. If I'm going to tell you that's wrong, I can't tell me that it's right before God. And as a pastor, that's one of the reasons why he says, be really careful to call yourself a teacher because you'll receive a stricter judgment because you're telling people all the time what's right and wrong. Don't you think that that's not going to happen to you now? And if you go through the whole Bible, but you know what? When I cling to Jesus, that stuff just isn't a concern to me. Because when I walk with Jesus, that just starts to happen anyway. So we go to the Lord in prayer, beloved. I really want to go to him now. I know we've gone through a lot of text. But beloved, it's all Jesus. That's the whole point of this. You remove him, all you've got is a bunch of empty emblems and a bunch of laws. What good is that? Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, we don't want to be cheated, deceived, spoiled. God, what we really, really want is we want to walk with you completely. We want to say yes to you. We want to love you. We want to want you more. Jesus, we want you to be everything. We want you to be our law. We want you to be our standard. We want you to be our discipline. We want you to be our value system. We want you to be our dreams and aspirations. We want you to be our future. We want you to be our life. You resurrected us. You redeemed us. You erased and eradicated and removed completely. You eliminated my sin and my guilty verdict. You did that, Jesus. Jesus, you plundered the enemy and all the powers of hell. You presented them as powerless and paraded them for me to see as completely owned and run. Oh God, please. Let me not trade you in for something else that couldn't have done any of that. But Lord, I want you to tell me how to act. This isn't just me telling other people, you can't tell me how to act. You can, Jesus, and you should. And so Lord Jesus, tell me how to act, how to live, how to walk, how to breathe, how to think, how to move, how to value. What is success? Don't let the world trade me in for that. Don't let me sort of transfer it over to the world system, to philosophies, or to a bunch of rules that, have nothing, that, that don't have you in the center of it. 
I'd like every rule, Lord, to revolve around the point that I, want, that I don't want anything interfering between me and you. And for every rule that involves that, Lord, let them clear and just etch them into my heart and establish them. I do believe you died for me, Jesus, on the cross to pay for my sins and you rose again on the third day. You promised you would and you did. And so again, I just openly acknowledge you as my Savior and as my Lord. And I give you the rights to my life to do as with me as you wish. Be the architect of my reinvention. Be the very the air that I breathe. Be the very source of all my inspiration. And in that now, Lord, work and live and, and through me. For in you I would move and I would do and I would have my being. And I would be. So Lord, now, for each one of us, do your work, I pray, as we openly confess ourselves as yours. In Jesus' name, amen.